Welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today is nobody. At least nobody here in the bunker. You're here, sort of, because you're listening to this, and I appreciate that. There's nothing quite like the feeling of not being alone. And there's nothing quite like the feeling that we're not alone in the universe. We've done a lot of podcast episodes on the UFO phenomenon over the last few years, And I think that almost every single time we have come to the sad and disappointing conclusion that it was actually a weather balloon, or some top-secret military project, or a spy plane cover-up, or a hoax, or an owl. So I thought that as a special treat for everyone, I would examine a case today that I will tell you right up front was not an owl. Venus is going to make an appearance a little later as part of the official Blue Book investigation explanation for this event. But I will also tell you right up front that that official explanation is complete nonsense in this case. But before I get to the specifics of this particular UFO case file, let's do a little background into the field of UFO studies. The American government started taking an interest in UFOs after the Kenneth Arnold incident, in which pilot Kenneth Arnold claimed he saw a squadron of strange craft flying over the mountains of Washington State in 1947, and the Captain Mantell incident, in which an Air National Guard pilot was killed while intercepting an unidentified flying object in the skies over Kentucky in 1948. As part of the official Air Force investigation, a series of projects were initiated, starting with Project Saucer, later renamed Project Sign, in 1948, followed by Project Grudge in 1949, and then Project Blue Book in 1952. We've done an episode on those early days of Project Blue Book when it was led by Captain Edward Ruppelt, Of course, any regular listeners already know the high esteem and respect we here at the Uncover-Up have for the work of Captain Ruppelt, as I think we regularly recommend people who are interested in UFOs should read Ruppelt's excellent book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, the original 1956 edition. And Ruppelt wasn't alone in his investigations, of course. Both Project Grudge and Blue Book had an in-house astronomer named Dr. Alan Hynek, Heineck had his PhD in astrophysics and taught astronomy at Ohio State University. Because the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio was the hotspot for government UFO research, Heineck was a natural choice as scientific advisor. When he first signed on, Heineck was dismissing UFO sightings as the product of unreliable or inaccurate witnesses, which also made him an excellent candidate for the Air Force project. As we have discussed in other episodes, while there were plenty of people within the American government in general, and the Air Force in particular, who thought that the UFO phenomenon was based in some sort of reality, the early days of Air Force investigations were heavily biased towards finding the conclusion that there was no such thing as flying saucers, and that the public should just shut up about them and concentrate on being afraid of the Soviets. At first, Heineck enjoyed the role of UFO debunker, as he found natural and non-alien explanations for most of the files that came across his desk. When Captain Ruppelt took over Blue Book, he redirected the program so that it was less of an Air Force PR exercise and more of a genuine inquiry into the truth behind these sightings. Heineck continued to find non-alien explanations for almost all of the sightings that they investigated, but became increasingly uncomfortable about the small amount of UFO reports that couldn't be explained away as natural phenomena or hoaxes. 
Hynek was also becoming increasingly disillusioned with the attitude of his Air Force bosses. With the exception of Ruppelt, few of them appeared to want to get to the truth behind the UFO phenomenon. Instead, they were pressuring Hynek to dismiss any and all UFO reports, even when Hynek found the evidence against the reports to be inconclusive. In an interview in 1985, Hynek was asked what had started changing his mind on the topic, and he said, Two things, really. One was the completely negative and unyielding attitude of the Air Force. They wouldn't give UFOs the chance of existing, even if they were flying up and down the street in broad daylight. Everything had to have an explanation. I began to resent that, even though I basically felt the same way, because I still thought that they weren't going about it in the right way. Secondly, the caliber of the witnesses began to trouble me. Quite a few instances were reported by military pilots, for example, and I knew them to be fairly well-trained. So this is when I first began to think that, well, maybe there was something to all of this. By the early 1960s, Hynek was no longer a skeptic when it came to the idea that extraterrestrial life could be visiting Earth. This change of heart put Hynek at odds with the head of Project Blue Book at the time, a man named Lieutenant Colonel Hector Quentinilla. Because, well, Captain Ruppelt approached Blue Book with a genuine desire to try to understand the UFO phenomenon, Lieutenant Colonel Quentinilla had a different approach. Whereas Ruppelt's 1953 report on UFOs is a fine example of balanced and honest inquiry, Quintanilla's unpublished manuscript on Project Blue Book is filled with passages in which he mocks people who believe in UFOs, or complains about having to research UFOs when he already knows they don't exist. And there's one section in which, bizarrely, he hits on his secretary in the middle of a chapter on UFO public relations. Also, the book itself was titled The $20 Million Fiasco, which also gives you some insight into his mindset about the project that he was now in charge of. Hynek and Ruppelt had had a strong working relationship, and each of them individually expressed respect for and confidence in the other one in their writings. The same was not true for Hynek and Quintanilla, as this passage from Quintanilla's book should make reasonably clear. Prior to April 1964, I had very little trouble with Hynek. He complained to me that Dave Moody was not treating him according to his scientific stature or some crap like that. I talked to Dave about it the first couple of times, and Dave would come back that he was too busy to babysit or kiss the doctor's ass, and that if he would get busy and evaluate the cases that were referred to him, then he wouldn't have time to worry about scientific stature. Dr. Hynek and Dave had a thing going, and I decided to study it. After I analyzed the situation, I had to agree with Dave. Dr. Hynek would come into the office, and he would spend the first couple of hours socializing or gossiping or telling us a lot of nonsense about who was writing books, articles, etc., it was during one of those distracting sessions that I raised my voice and asked Dr. Hynek to confine his visit to case studies and let the rest of the staff proceed with their work. Hynek, on the other hand, said this about his Blue Book boss. Quintanilla's method was simple. Disregard any evidence that was counter to his hypothesis. Clearly, this was not a working relationship built on mutual respect. I'm not saying that Quintanilla was a bad human being, obviously, but he might not have been the best choice to lead an investigation into the truth behind UFOs. Unless, of course, the U.S. Air Force was less interested in learning the truth and more interested in quieting the whole thing down, in which case Quintanilla was an excellent choice. And in the spring of 1966, something would happen that would irritate Quintanilla, intrigue Hynek, and cause yet another flying saucer flap in the United States. Because during the early morning of April 16th in Portage County, Ohio, a high-speed police chase was underway as Deputy Sheriff Dale Spower and Deputy Barney Neff hurtled down country roads. 
But the rabbit in this particular chase wasn't a desperate criminal in a souped-up car. Instead, it was a shining object in the sky, big as a house and shaped like the top of an umbrella or half of a football. Or, if you prefer, a flying flying saucer. saucer. And here's what happened. After an extremely 1960s-style dinner of steak and eggs and two cups of coffee, Officer Spower picked up Deputy Neff for their midnight shift and drove to the scene of a crashed car that had run into a utility pole. After sending the driver to the hospital and arranging for the car to be towed, they drove to the nearby town of Deerfield for some more coffee, because this story has a lot of coffee in it. Then they headed back to the scene of the crash to make sure the knockdown utility pole was being dealt with, and, of course, to bring a coffee to the utility worker who was fixing the downed wires. They arrived back at the scene of the accident around 4.45 a.m. While talking to the utility worker, the officers received a radio call about a woman reporting a brightly lit object, quote, as big as a house, end quote, flying over her neighborhood. Spower and Neff didn't take it too seriously and got into their squad car and drove west on Route 224 to fill out an accident report at the hospital. On the way, they stopped to investigate a car that they came across at the side of the road. As they got out of their own car, Spower claimed, I got out the left side, and I went to the left rear of the other vehicle. I turned just to make sort of a visual observation of the area, to make sure nobody had walked into the woods, you know, to take a leak or something. And when I looked into this wooded area behind us, I saw this thing. At this time, it was coming up. Went up to about treetop level, I'd say about 100 feet. It started moving towards us. I looked at Barney and told him to look over his shoulder, so he did. He didn't say nothing. He just stood there with his mouth open for a minute. The only sound in the whole area was a hum. Spower reported that both he and Neff were petrified for a few moments before both running back to the safety of the patrol car, from which they sat and watched the UFO drift over them. They called it into the station and were told at first by the dispatcher to open fire on the object, but by then it had moved out of range, so the patrolmen were told to give chase. As Spower and Neff chased the object at speeds that occasionally hit 105 miles an hour, they were still on the radio with their dispatcher. Another officer named Wayne Houston was in the nearby town of East Palestine when he heard the radio conversation, and he started looking for the object as well. According to Houston, he saw an object about 800 feet off the ground fly overhead, and then he joined in the chase with Spower's car, continuing towards the Pennsylvania border at approximately 85 miles an hour. All the while, the strange object continued flying ahead of them. When he heard the commotion on the radio, Gerald Buckert, the police chief of the nearby town of Mantua, ran outside with his Brownie 120 camera and took a picture of the object. It was too dark to capture any detail, but the photograph clearly shows an object in the sky that resembles the top half of a football on its side. Bookert's wife Joan went outside with him as well, and she said that she saw an object that looked like two tea saucers joined together. When the two cars stopped for gas in Conway, Pennsylvania at 5 o'clock in the morning, they met up with another local police officer named Frank Panzanella. Panzanella hadn't heard the radio communications between Spower and Houston, but he had seen a strange object in the sky. He was watching it when Spower and Houston pulled up in their cars. Panzanella called into his own dispatcher to tell them to notify the Pittsburgh airport. At that point, the four officers report that the object climbed to a height of approximately 3,500 feet to the left of the moon. Then it shot straight up and disappeared. So what was it? There were so many witnesses, including several witnesses that didn't know each other and who encountered the object independently of each other, that we can eliminate the hypothesis that the story is simply made up. We have the evidence from the police chief's photograph. 
Clearly, something was in the skies of Ohio that morning. At this point, let's look at the usual suspects. Uh, Somewhere, Lee can sense that I am about to bring up weather balloons and it's causing him to grind his teeth together. But anytime there's a UFO sighting, it's certainly one of the possible explanations. However, according to Quint Noah's report, there were no weather balloons in the area. And even if there had been, the wind was only blowing at about three miles an hour, not nearly enough velocity for a balloon to participate in a high-speed car chase. The official explanation from Project Blue Book, written up by Quintana, was that the men were at first confused and chasing a satellite in the sky, and then later in the chase became even more confused and were actually looking at the planet Venus. That's two classic UFO explanations for the price of one, but we'll examine each claim individually. Let's start with the satellite. In 1966, there were several artificial satellites orbiting the Earth, including the large Echo 1 uh, and Echo 2 spherical satellites, and the smaller Pegasus satellites. According to Quintanilla's report, there should have been several satellites visible over Ohio that morning. However, when Hynek asked the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory about this, they said there would have been no satellites visible at that time. Regardless of this discrepancy, there are still problems with the satellite hypothesis. A satellite will appear as a bright speck in the sky and will move past the horizon fairly rapidly, since any satellite that's in low enough orbit to be seen by the naked eye must be moving at an extremely rapid velocity in order to ensure that it doesn't just come crashing back down to Earth. And the photograph that we have is certainly not of a satellite. There are also issues with the explanation that the officers eventually became confused and mistook Venus for the object they were chasing. According to the testimony of Spower and Neff, the object became more defined as the sky grew lighter, whereas Venus would have started fading in the morning light. Panzanella reported that the object appeared to the left of the moon, while Venus would have been to the upper right of the moon at that time. Uh, Finally, several of the officers mentioned in their interviews that they had also noticed Venus in the sky while they were looking at the UFO, which means that they couldn't have mistaken one for the other. In a statement written on April 22, 1966, Chief Buckert claimed, I was advised that what I saw was probably only the planet Venus as it was in that general area. I asked Quintanilla if it was the planet Venus, then how come it moved up and down and to the side? I at one time kept the wires from the telephone pole in view, and the object did go below the wires and then above them. The wires were not moving. I was advised by the Major that this was due to the atmospheric conditions, most likely. Quintanilla wasn't particularly interested in pursuing this case. According to Spower, the initial investigation composed of a four-minute phone call in which Quintanilla opened with... So tell me about this mirage you saw. That's not an ideal way to start an unbiased interview. It's likely that Quinilla wouldn't have bothered at all with any follow-up investigation of the incident if Spower and the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena Research Group hadn't contacted their congressman, John Stanton, who then applied pressure on Quinilla to look deeper into the case. Quinilla returned to Portage County, But reading the transcript of the interview he conducted with Spower demonstrates that he was spending very little time listening to Spower about what he saw, and instead spent most of the time trying to convince Spower that he had been looking at Venus. In previous UFO case files, such as the 1948 death of Captain Mantell, when it became immediately clear to us that there was some sort of cover-up occurring on the part of the Air Force, we then considered the possibility that the UFO had actually been some new secret technology that the Air Force didn't want people talking about or looking into. So is that what was really going on in the skies of Ohio that morning? 
had those police officers accidentally stumbled into some kind of new Air Force project. Well, based on the description, it would have had to have been a vehicle that moved under its own power, and it had no propeller. That eliminates balloon-based or helicopter-based tech. One possible contender is the experimental plane called the Hawker Sidley P-1127, which as an early vertical takeoff and landing aircraft would have been one of the few vehicles capable of the maneuvers the witnesses saw. It was operational in 1966, and while it was a British design, both the U.S. Air Force and NASA operated them as well. In 1966, there would have been six of those in the United States. With its short squat body and wide stubby wings, it could possibly have been mistaken for a flying saucer. But by 1966, the P-1127 was hardly a secret. It had already been featured at public air shows in England and in France. There would have been no reason for a cover-up. Also, the P-1127 was extremely loud, producing the distinctive howl of a jet engine rather than a hum. So what about Project 1794? That was the U.S. Air Force's attempt to build a flying saucer in the 1950s. Despite the impressive amount of funding, the closest the project came to a real flying saucer was the Canadian Avro car. We did a full episode on that. According to official reports, the Avro car had serious stability issues and never achieved a height of more than anything like a couple feet off the ground and was cancelled in late 1961. Uh, There was also the saucer-shaped Vought V173 flying pancake in the 1940s, but it was propeller-driven and would have produced a typical aircraft noise. Also, that project and the follow-up project, the XF5U, were both scrapped in 1947 and the prototypes were destroyed. Even with the advantage of looking back from over 50 years in the future, we don't know of any experimental craft that could have explained what happened that morning. But a a short and obscure newspaper article in the Daily Kent Stater from October 18, 1966 might provide us with an answer. According to the article, a woman called into two local papers to claim that her son and some of his friends had built a fake flying saucer out of an old weather balloon, some batteries, and a bicycle light. According to an unnamed spokesman for one of the papers, they had interviewed one of the boys, and while they wouldn't release the boy's name, said, quote, We do know that the story is true. We now have proof that the boys did send up the balloon which was spotted by the deputies that night. This sounds promising as an explanation at first. However, this story raises more questions than it answers. If the wind was blowing at three miles an hour, how did this homemade contraption lead a high-speed police chase? What was the proof that the boys showed the spokesman? How did a battery-powered bicycle light generate enough brilliance that Spower reported that it was like looking at a welding torch? Why are the students not named in this story? Why was there no follow-up to this claim despite congressional involvement in the incident? Why does the photograph taken by Buckert look nothing like a weather balloon? In the 1960s, American intelligence agencies were not above planting false stories in newspapers. And as paranoid as it may sound, it's actually not impossible that this is the case here that an American intelligence agency invented and planted the story in order to prevent the kind of UFO-driven panic in the general population that Project Saucer and Grudge were initially designed to suppress. We don't have any evidence that that is necessarily the case here, but it is, because of the time we're talking about, a possibility. But even if this story is authentic and accurate, it doesn't reflect well on Project Blue Book under the leadership of Quintanilla, Because if this account is true, and it was a student hoax, then Quintanilla's tunnel-vision pursuit of blaming Venus and satellites prevented him from listening to the evidence that went against his preferred hypothesis, just like Hynek accused him of. 
And that target fixation led Quintanilla to straight up gaslight those witnesses, telling them that what they saw wasn't really what they saw. And as it often does, that gaslighting had some long-term consequences. Neff, Panzanella, Buckert, and Houston never recanted their testimony, but they did stop talking to people about what happened that night. Buckert even considered resigning, and Houston did quit his job and moved to Seattle to become a bus driver, later saying, Sure, I quit because of that thing. People laughed at me, and there was pressure. You couldn't put your finger on it, but the pressure was there. The city officials didn't like police officers chasing flying saucers. But Spower didn't back down on his claims, despite the official explanation from the Air Force. The stress of being held up to ridicule as the cop who chased a flying saucer took its toll on Spower. And only six months after this incident, he had lost both his job and his family and was living in a motel. In his last known interview, Spower said, I've become a freak. I'm so damn lonely. Look at me, 34 years old, and what do I have? Nothing. Who knows me? To everyone, I'm Dale Spower, the nut who chased a flying saucer. What can we take away from this story? Dr. Hynek wasn't brought in as a scientific advisor on this one, but he did investigate it afterwards and came to the conclusion that this UFO case file should be considered unexplained. Here at the Uncover Up, we agree with that assessment. The official explanation of the witnesses becoming confused by a satellite and Venus is clearly unsupported at best and a deliberate cover-up at worst. As far as the alternate explanations go, there are issues with all of them. Uh, The hoax story is intriguing, but doesn't fit the eyewitness accounts or photographic evidence very well, or explain how a balloon-based craft could have sent the police on a 100-mile-an-hour chase with a 3-mile-an-hour wind. One thing that this story does tell us for certain, was that mid-1960s, Project Blue Book was not about trying to find the truth about the UFO phenomenon. Instead, it was trying to get people to stop talking about the UFO phenomenon. And Dale Spower sadly turned into a cautionary example of what can happen to a person when their own experiences don't line up with accepted knowledge and the official story. As we see with this and other examples from this time period, chasing UFOs can be an extremely dangerous business. <laughs>